everyone. Welcome to AE Live. Um, I'm happy to have on a guest day. Today, we are going to call the show the CFI Special. And the reason why is like all pilots, we all have CFIs. Uh, we all have instructors, no matter if you are the top of your airline or if you're just the brand making new private pilot, um, we all have CFIs. So I have a CFI and my CFI said, Bob, I have a guest I want you to go speak to. And his name is Brian Schiff. And I said, who the heck is Brian Schiff? No, I'm joking. <laughs> so Brian, Brian does a lot of talks at like AOPA and um, um, safety seminars. And, uh, and, and if you go online, you'll find him. Uh, he actually goes by the name, the Proficient Pilot, um, which is a name that is staying in his family. His father also, um, um, Barry Schiff also went by um, the Proficient Pilot. And so our talk today with Brian is going to be on Ready for this? Proficiency. Amazing. And so um, with that, let's go ahead and bring in Brian. Hey, Brian, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank and you. Thanks for to your CFI for recommending me. Yeah, yeah. He um, yeah, every, he comes up with some really awesome uh, some folks sometimes. He says, hey, Bob, you know, you'd have this thing and I'd like to hear from that, you know, that person. And that's, you know, honestly, that's the best, you know, person you can Get a request from <laughs> so your flight instructor reaches to the bottom of the cookie jar for the last cookie in there doesn't he <laughs> that's right yeah you know i'm expecting you know you know astronauts you know whoever he picked you <laughs> so, wow well so, i'm honored so so max this show goes out to you he'll be all happy to <laughs> so all right. thanks um, max for thinking of me that's right all right so um so now you know i usually i start these conversations and we talk about the origin story right so whether it's marvel or if it's dc universe right you know <laughs> you get the 12 different batman um you know origin stories so now your origin story usually i ask folks i say you know did your parents fly you know an uncle an aunt like how'd you get to flying and like for you <laughs> I know how you got into flying. I know that guy. That guy. <laughs> that guy right there. Um, yeah. yeah. When your dad has, when your dad has a boxed set <laughs> in aviation, right? There's not many box sets in aviation. Um, so how? So I'm going to ask the question, even though I kind of know. So for our audience that doesn't know, how did you get started in aviation? Well, that's actually a fun question, and and it had a lot to do with dad, actually. I just use him as my pen name. I've written all that stuff and, and I just use his picture and no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, Fake I grew it till up, you make it. <laughs> I grew up watching dad, uh, you know, flying. I rode along with him all the time. And ironically, when I was a kid, I got airsick all the time. And I just hated going up in airplanes because I'd get airsick. And, and, uh, I mean, I like going up, I like going places. He let me fly. In fact, I learned how to fly instruments before, uh, I could fly VFR because I couldn't see over the glare shield. You know, I'm 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 looking straight at the instruments because I was too short to see over. So I, I could fly. It was like a video game for me, and uh, I would be we'd be out at breakfast or or whatever at the local airport cafe, and and somebody would walk up invariably and say, "Hey, aren't you Barry Schiff?" And and I'd be like, so it kind of gave me an impression of okay, my dad must be somebody, you know, and. That was all really cool and all kind of annoying because it interrupted our meals all the time <laughs> yeah. in aviation, you know, big fish, small pond kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody outside of aviation obviously wouldn't know who he was. But it was a day when I was about 11 years old that we went to the airport to pick up dad from work. 
And we sit, sat by the approach end of runway 24 right at LAX, and a big aluminum overcast thundering 747 comes flying overhead, and my, my stepmom points up to it and says, hey, that, your dad's flying that. And when I looked at that, and then she told me that dad's flying it, that was it. I had to do it. That's one That's one guy's in charge of driving that whole thing. And uh, yes, he has a crew, but he was the captain on that airplane. And that was very motivating for me. And then it uh, took me a few years to muster the courage when I was 14. I finally asked him, I said, what do I have to do to learn how to fly? And he pulled me out into the garage. We, he opened up a big old box full of stuff that had my name on it. It was a sectional, uh, an E6B, a plotter, a flying book. You know, it was a flight training handbook at the time. Uh, the far aim and all that stuff that he'd been waiting, never pushed me once. But when I finally came to him, he was ready. Oh. That's cool. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and actually before we get on to the rest of your career, you have, and I hope this is a good story because I didn't ask you before we started. Um, you are now third generation. I hope. How did your son just did his practical last week, right? How'd that go? Well, he didn't take it yet. We had to push it back uh, okay. uh, for because of the DPE um, <clears throat> said he wasn't ready yet. Anyway, um, no, <laughs> we, we postponed it a little bit. I'm a tough instructor to begin with, mm -hmm. and I don't send, you know, some instructors will send a student with a, a hope that, okay, I'm just going to send them and it's going <laughs> to roll the works. dice and hope this guy passes. We've all been there. If you're an instructor, you know you've done this before, and they pass or they don't. But with your son, you're not willing to play that game. And... I'm holding him to a much higher standard because he's my son. I have high standards to begin with, but I'm holding him to a higher standard. And I just feel like I don't want to put any kind of DPE who I might know uh, on the spot of feeling compelled to do something they shouldn't. And, and I just want him to be ready 100%. So we're going to take a little bit more time. That's actually interesting, right? Because a lot of times if you take, I mean, aviation is a small community, you know, especially if, you know, you get the folks that are really into it like yourself. So, you know, now all of a sudden you're right. I mean, most DPEs, I mean, they're going to come out and they're going to say, well, I don't care, you know, whose dad it is. I don't care whose, you know, grandpa it is. I don't, I don't care. Right. It's, it's on them. And that's what they should say. But you, but you know, and I know, you know, there's a little bit of stress. Like if the, the, that DPE knows you and he knows your dad and, um, you know, and so there's probably is a little bit more stress to kind of come up to a, a, a solution if there's a problem. Um, and, uh, and so that's actually really cool. Um, so you actually were your son's CFI? Yes. So how hard, so I, okay. So we're the, you have to be honest with us now. Were there times <laughs> after the flight that you and your son didn't talk for a day or two? Oh, absolutely. And there were times like that. There were some very uncomfortable dinners when dad was teaching me how to fly. Of course, yep. that was the day when he would just smack me upside the head and we can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, the kids have too many cameras. So they record that oh, stuff. You're always on camera. Uh, but, but aside from that, you know, you got to be tough with your students. And there are times when there are some uncomfortable, you know, periods of time afterwards. And, you know, that is what it is. And luckily he'd go back into his room and he has video games to... Uh, recover from from all these <laughs> times when i'm being a tough cfi but for the most part it, it w went over pretty well we didn't really have too many moments like that he's a great student he's a great stick um mm. he, you know he's absorbing it like a sponge and i think that uh you know he'll be a great pilot one day that's cool so yeah. we're gonna preempt this and say he will be getting his pilot's license and he will be third generation he's already been flying airplanes he's already soloed so you know oh, he, he's he already will. a pilot 
Um, I'm a firm believer that once you, once you solo, like you may not have that private pilot certificate, but once you felt the wing, the wind under your wings, you know, I feel like a Bette Midler song coming on, but, um, <laughs> once you, uh, once you have that wind, you know, you're, you're controlling the airplane and, and there's nobody else there. Um, <clears throat> people will say, well, you know, listen, you know, the CFI is there, but they're not really taking control. That is a totally different feeling than when you're actually up there by yourself and it comes, you come to the very realization that if something happens, there ain't nobody there to bail you out. So <laughs> that Absolutely. is a moment that's you become a pilot. It's real. Yeah. Yep. That's the moment I you're agree. a pilot. Um, so you are third generation, third generation aviation. Now I want to go back to something you said. So when you're uh, now, are you, t do you do a lot of flight instruction or is that something you're kind of just doing for your son or do you have other student pilots? Well, I, I do quite a bit. I do a more um, flight reviews and instrument proficiency checks or advanced training on this or that and the other. I don't typically take on a full-time student right now because I'm just too busy. So uh, I'll help out. I just recently helped someone out with their commercial and uh, with another instructor as well and, and gave a different point of view, an advanced point of view on, on how to do these maneuvers or that maneuvers. Uh, I do a lot of consulting and I have my job at the airline. So I'm pretty busy and I don't want to take on, it would be a disservice to a student to take on a full-time student right now so i don't do that so much but i am an active flight instructor cool now how important it is it um let's say somebody's working in their private pilot right and they're working with the same cfi the whole time and they get ready to take their their check ride how important do you think it is for them to have kind of a second set of eyes just prior to that check ride to kind of maybe pick up something that the other instructor didn't see I think it's not only important, but critical. Um, one perspective, uh, it's like, would you rather have one safety net or two or three or as many as they could fit? Um, one instructor might not see something that another instructor will see. I think a, a phase check is absolutely critical. Going with other instructors also gives you other techniques. Uh, I am a potpourri of all the best things of all the instructors with whom I've flown. And that's one of the, you know, we can talk about how airlines are so much safer than general aviation for so many reasons. And one of the things is you fly with so many pilots and you get to learn the different techniques of doing things. And you might see something, wow, I really like that. And you're going to take that and add it to your collection. And as uh, if you only fly with one pilot, you only know one way, one technique. You've only seen one one method of doing something that that maybe that instructor hasn't hasn't seen other ways as well. So I think it's important to fly with definitely at least two pilots, two instructors before you take a check ride, because they might see something that the other instructor doesn't see. For example, I, I went up for, I gave a phase check to somebody, um, before they went up for a, a, a private pilot check ride and they were flying with both hands on a yoke. Mm -hmm. And is there anything wrong with that? No, there's no regulation against it. It's not, it, it's just a technique. Uh, and this other instructor never caught the fact that this pilot was doing that, but that's one of the things that's a pet peeve of mine as an experienced pilot. I've seen a lot of mistakes made by pilots who are flying with both hands. Uh, so that was one of the little things that we caught. And what I basically do, I, you know, every time they pull their hand off the throttle, I pull it back. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> you need to fly with one hand because I said, you're going to get your instrument rating one day, right? You want to be a professional pilot? Yes. Well, you need your other hand for tuning radios, for programming GPS, for pulling up a chart, using your iPad, whatever. You need to fly with one hand. Uh, so that was one of the things that we caught. But there are so many like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, um, 
I want to go into before we talk about proficiency, because um, you are an airline pilot, and are you now that you know, COVID's not over, right? Unfortunately, there's people still dying every day, and um, you know we're still yeah. going through all this. But um, um, as the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, you know, is starting to shine, is um, are, are you seeing generally not only aviation, but aviation, especially um, commercial aviation that you're in, it seems like it's starting to pick up. I think I saw that um, Delta was hiring 300 brand new pilots, um, you know, just this last week. So um, it does seem like it's starting to come back up. Are you seeing that pick up as well? Absolutely. The flights, our flights have been full uh, because we're giving away tickets, really, basically. So you can't Can judge how full the flights are. <laughs> but the prices are coming back up, which is showing there's more demand. Uh, we're, I think I read in one of our newsletters that we're going to be pulling all the airplanes out of storage and getting them back active again. And uh, there was announced that there will be no furloughs and hiring is on the horizon Good. again. So absolutely, it's it's coming back. It's spinning back up. Uh, you know, my son was worried. He goes, oh, well, should I really be getting into this career? Is this something I should be doing right now? And I said, absolutely. Look at the whole hiring process has been on pause while you're getting your licenses and ratings and certificates. Uh, and so that it's waiting for you, so to speak. Uh, but yes, I see a lot of indications pointing to the industry spinning back up and people are ready to get going again. Yeah, I even think it's um, I think if, if you were I don't know where your son is in, you know, his career with his um, his schooling. But is he still in high school or is he going to college yet or? He's a senior graduating from high school in a couple months and okay. then he'll be going to uh, UND to attend their aviation okay. program there. Very good. I, I, you yeah. know, hey, listen, UND, if you're listening, I sent you an email. I'm looking for somebody <laughs> to come over and talk to us about UND. I got Emery Riddle coming on. So just, you know, a little, little, little plug for Emery Riddle. UND, where are you? Anyways. Uh, <laughs> so. They'll be here. Come on, you. UND. We'll, we'll get him here. <laughs> please, please do. Um, yeah. You know, because I, you know, I, I work with a lot of kids that are about the same age as your son, then, right? So, in Civil Air Patrol, we work, you know, basically middle school and high school and, and a little bit of college, and um, and so I keep trying to tell them, you know, over and over again that. Um, you know, now is actually probably a really good time to become a pilot because there's a lot of pilots, I think, that actually left that, you know, they, they were maybe a little bit middle aged, like, you know, they, they looked like us, right? They had the gray on the side and uh, yeah. <laughs> they looked like us and, you know, they can't be furloughed for a year. Right. So they went and they, they got another career. And so I think you have pilots that have left and you're going to need so you're going to have a pilot shortage, I think. Oh, there will be a pilot shortage. There was one right before COVID, and we were wondering, where are we going to get all these pilots from? Uh, we need mm -hmm. this many pilots. And if you were to look at, and I could show you, uh, the retirement schedule for the next 10 years. Uh, and just to give you an example, at, at uh, my airline, we have 14,000-plus pilots. Mm -hmm. Half of them retire in the next 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. So let's say, you know, we always focus on the younger, you know, coming up pilots. What if you're somebody say, oh, this is before me, but, but let's say somebody's in their mid thirties and, you know, they've been flying general aviation and, and they find, you know what, they come home from work and they jump on Microsoft flight simulator because they just, you know, they, they, they like flying better than they like their job. Right. Is there an age where you think that it's kind of too late to really kind of jump in for somebody that might be interested in making a career change? Into, into aviation? Yeah, I think if you're, you know, mandatory retirement age is 65 from the airlines, you can still fly corporate beyond that or charter part 135 uh, above that age. But so I don't, I'm going to say no, unless you want to go to the airlines, then you got to be ready by 
you know, in order to work and then retire at age 65. And in the 30s, I would still regard that as as young. 40s, I would I would say you could make that lane change as well. It takes a few years to get the licenses, the certificates and ratings that you need and then build up some time. Uh, then you can put in a good 10-year career doing it, and it would be a wonderful 10 years. I mean, if you were 55 even, if you're, uh, you know, going to charter or corporate uh, or, or many of the other ways you can make money flying airplanes, you can do it beyond that age. So uh, there's no minimum age I'm going to throw out there because you can always do it if you want to. I had a, a doctor I spoke with who, uh, while practicing medicine, and I would say he was in his mid-40s and said, I, I really love flying airplanes. He had an airplane. I said, why don't you, you should try fly because I want to fly jets. I've never, I don't know how I'm going to get to fly a jet. I said, well, get your, you know, commercial instrument, all that build up some, he had the flying time already. And I said, apply to the commuters. And he did. He went to uh, a commuter and started flying CRJs and absolutely loved it. And he's a doctor, but he loved doing that as well. And he was, you know, doing both jobs actually. That's pretty cool. So yeah. yeah. So, so you, I always think of the CRJs as like hard, like, especially if you're older, like you almost got to like wait till your kids are out. Right. Cause usually the CRJs, it's hard to get a home base near where you live. Right. So usually you're traveling a lot, even to get to work. Yeah. And, and you know, commuting is a possibility. Uh, it makes for a lot more difficult career as an airline pilot because you're spending more time commuting, some more time away from home. But as a single guy uh, with no family, or I shouldn't say guy, guy or gal, anybody without a family makes it real easy because you're not leaving a family behind. With a family, it makes it more difficult to spend those extra days commuting, but it is doable. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so that's pretty cool. So so it, let's say you get somebody, whether they're your son's age or, you know, they're that 30 year old or 40 year old, or even the doctor. Right. If somebody, you know, I think getting your pilot's license, I think, is pretty well understood. Right. Um, you know, you're flying somewhere between 40 to 80 hours, you know, and uh, you pass a check ride. And then I always recommend you get that instrument rating right away. Like I, I personally, I think that, you know, I, I, I understand why there's freedom and, you know, you, you shouldn't mandate things that, but honestly, that instrument rating, I think should be almost like something you, you should just do, um, get yourself out of trouble. So, yeah, I agree. If your aspirations are to go fly around on weekends and just go out for a beautiful hundred dollar hamburger or fly locally and all that. Maybe not so much. If your aspirations are career oriented in aviation, or if you plan on using the airplane for travel, uh, to go, you know, cross country flying and go places, the instrument rating is invaluable. It will not only make a better pilot out of you, it'll sharpen your skills and it can get you out of trouble, uh, when needed. Yeah. So now, now the folks that get their, you know, their private pilot and their instrument rating, and then obviously they have to go commercial, multi-engine, and then, you know, the big bad boy is ATP, right? So, um, you know, walk us through, like when you were learning how to fly and you, you know, you had a little bit of a, a leg up, right? Because you had somebody in your family with your dad who was obviously so into it. You just had Navy, you just had a community around you, you know, uh, built for that. So for somebody that maybe doesn't have a community, maybe like, I always try to think about like that, that, that kid that lives in a rural area, right? It may take them an hour just to drive to their closest airport, um, but they have a dream of being you know, a commercial pilot like yourself. So once they get that, that private and then hopefully the instrument, like what's, what's that line? Like how do they get from being a private pilot to getting a job in the airlines? I know that's a long answer, but what's your <laughs> recommendations there? Live, eat, sleep, breathe aviation. Mm -hmm. You got to love it. If you don't love it, you're not going to be good at it to begin with. And you're not going to have the fortitude to put in that hour to get there. 
the travel time if you're not anywhere near an airport. But so you've got to love it. Uh, I, I've talked to some people who wanted to do it because it looked like a great, easy job that you don't have to work that much and you get paid a lot of money and you have a lot of time off. And that's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is because you love it. You love doing it. There are, are many negative aspects about the job. But from private pilot, you've just got to keep plugging away. You've got to keep working at it, go for the instrument next, the commercial. Uh, go to air shows, attend webinars as far as that community goes, uh, watching uh, you know, webinars like this and, and YouTube channels like yours, getting involved in the community. It's a small community. It's very easy now to get involved uh, virtually online with the community, L attend forums, look at forums, read, uh, you know, AOP has a great forum. There are all kinds of forums on the internet where you can just read and participate, but be very careful, be cautious of the, the expert behind the keyboard who can type almost any kind of advice. Right. Uh, but the idea is to just keep moving and keep learning, you know, keep learn as much as you can attend classes. Uh, the wings are courses are free. You get credit with the FAA and there's a lot of great material in there. Uh, so just keep on learning and one learning, taking one class is going to lead to another. Uh, if you're anything like me, because I'll start looking into one topic and then I'll see a squirrel on another topic and <laughs> we're chasing that one. And then I'm, as I'm studying one topic, I get a list of other things I want to go look at. You've really got to be interested in it enough to be doing that and participate in as much online go to when we start getting the, uh, uh, in-person seminars and, and sun and fun is coming up. Uh, if you have the ability to get to those places where there's a fly-in or any kind of aviation gathering, EAA is a wonderful one as well. And obviously joining Civil Air Patrol for, for uh, younger people as well. Yeah, um, you know, I definitely also, you know, I will, you, since you mentioned it, I try not to plug too much about Civil Air Patrol, otherwise I'll end up talking, not letting you guys talk. But yeah, you know, we, everything you said, like between flying with different people, um, you know, if you're GA, you know, you don't have access to flying with as many pilots typically um, as you would in the airlines. But if you join Civil Air Patrol, that actually is a really good way of getting that yeah. kind of experience. Because, you know, um, we have rules that you can't fly with the same check pilot more than, you know, twice in a row. Um, so that third time you have to have a brand new check pilot. Um, you know, so it forces the issue. Plus, you know, we do a lot of orientation flights and mission flights and, um, you know, so you're flying with lots of different pilots and, and frankly, a lot of our pilots, you know, a lot of them are airline pilots or they're ex military or they're ex airline pilots. So even though you think to yourself, okay, well, you might be a general aviation person with say 250 hours, the person that you're flying next to, they might be 65 years old but they might have 15,000, 20,000 hours, you know, flew for the airlines. So they may be able to give you some, some thoughts that you're not even thinking of. Um, because even, you know, your CFIs, your CFIs may be under a thousand hours. They're, you know, they're building up their hours to get that career job. Um, you know, so Civil Air Patrol, you may be flying with people that have significantly more experience than even maybe even your CFIs. So, um, yeah, we'll plug great. For and I know that you guys, how you operate. And so you're going to get a lot of not only experience and diversity in pilots with whom you're flying but the discipline that yeah. you guys under which you guys operate and the uh regard for safety and, and standardization as well i think those are a uh, positive aspects of what you guys are doing that that i try to teach mm -hmm. in in the part 61 world of training as well now yeah you um so moving forward a little bit i'm kind of i'm, I'm thinking about my cfi again max so max again this is the max episode so uh brian we thought this was going to be the brian schiff 
episode, but this is going to be the Max, the CFI episode. So, um, so it, it, you know, so let's say Max, I'm going to pick on Max. So, so if Max goes and um, um, he gets his airline job, right? What's your recommendation for brand new uh, first officers that are just kind of, you know, just getting into the right seat for the first time? Uh, what would you recommend for them to help them their careers as they start to, you know, literally take off? Get the book, How to Be a Chameleon for Dummies. <laughs> Is that really a book? But, no, it's oh, not. Oh, okay. I was going to go look it up. The hardest, <laughs> the most difficult aspect of becoming a new first officer is is really, you. and we joke about it, a, a good first officer is a good chameleon because he has to change his colors to adapt to the captain with whom he's flying or she is flying because they're so everybody's so different. And you're going to fly with people. You need to be able to learn and adapt. to to. Now, we have standards that we operate by and everybody's supposed to do the same thing but there are also some there's a lot of leeway in our professional flying for technique as well so you see a lot of different techniques as a new first officer you should be prepared to absorb the techniques that you like discard the ones you don't like but evaluate them but be respectful uh, of the, the the rank of the captain who is in charge of the flight also you, you you know we're also teaching CRM and that's a very big thing a lot more than we used to because it used to be you know a crotchety old smoking pilot would tell you to just sit down and shut up and you know don't touch anything unless I tell you to mm -hmm. it's a little bit different now and it's not to say that the first officer has uh, an equal vote as the captain you know he, he his decision is overriding but what we're teaching now is not to just sit there and be submissive and hint and hope that if you see two out of three green lights, just to hint that it's two out of three green or to hope that the captain sees it, you're supposed to be assertive and point things out when there are a, a safety aspect. So to be assertive regarding things for safety and know when to be assertive, it's a very difficult balancing act for a new first officer. Like if we look at that Little Rock accident, the MD-80 went into Little right. Rock, they were tired, they flew all day, brand new pilot flying with a chief pilot. and you know, the brand new pilot is to assume that, well, this is not only a very experienced captain, but he's the chief pilot. So I'm not going to call him out or correct him. Well, you know what? If you're about to land in a thunderstorm, I think that's an okay time to call him out and say, I'm not comfortable with this. And so you need to know when to be assertive uh, as a first officer who is green, but yet also be a sponge to absorb all the great things that you're going to learn from flying with a, a diverse group of pilots. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. So if you see, yeah, you said the two green, the one red, don't just go, you know what? I like Christmas time because you know, all the green <laughs> or red lights, you know, like red. <laughs> point out the red light. Um, yeah. yeah. If you look at, especially on the, um, the commercial side, um, you see so many of the accident reports that come up from NTSB and so many of them are, we're all human and we all make mistakes. I don't care if you're a, a 300 million hour pilot, we all make mistakes. Our brains all turn off sometimes. Um, and so having, that's why I think airlines are so safe is because you have that second person that can say, Hey, I can see your brain turned off. Did you notice this? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, um, question for you. So, um, now we're going to get into proficiency in a second. Uh, we're kind of work our way into it, but you know, there's, um, a lot of the airline folks, once they go from general aviation to the airlines, you don't see a lot of them coming back, um, to general aviation. Now, some of them do obviously like yourself. Um, but what, what are some of the things, what are some of the safety lessons uh, say general aviation can take away from the commercial pilots? You actually mentioned, you know, about the, the commercial uh, aviation, you know, having a, the safety record. So what are some of the things GA can take away from the commercial aviation? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a, one of my most popular seminars I give is, is airline techniques for GA pilots. And, and I changed that because it's not just airline techniques. It's actually, you know, professional pilot techniques, because it's not to say that a, a, a charter pilot or, um, some other professional cargo pilot, whatever, can't bring to the table as well. So professional techniques, uh, there are, is a more strict set of regulations, and that's at, you know FAR Part 121 for the airlines to operate under. For starters, there is no reason that a GA pilot who's flying under Part 91 can't adhere to Part 121 limits. So we we really we we have a buffer for landing distances. We have a buffer for takeoff distances. Uh, a GA pilot can descend or begin an instrument approach when the weather is zero zero. At the airlines, we cannot do that. We need to have the weather needs to be above minimums before we can begin an approach, or we just don't do it. These are, I mean, there's numerous tech regulations like that that it's perfectly fine for a GA pilot to apply to their own flying. And, and for starters, that's one of them. We have a stabilized approach criteria. If, if you're trying to get down and uh, you're high and you know it, you got, look at the four, four white pappies, but at least I'm high, at least I'm fast. <laughs> you know, watch this. I think I got this. I think I can do it. If those words enter your head, go around. Um, you know, in GA, if, if you're not stable by 300 feet, you should be doing a go around. If the, in jets, it's 1,000 feet. Uh, if we're not stable by 1,000 feet, and stable by meaning you're on speed, your power is set for you know your approach and not back at idle. Um, I mean, in GA we do power off approaches, so I'll give you that. Uh, you're not configured for landing, and things just aren't looking good. Do a go around. Uh, we have mandatory go arounds under certain conditions. So a stabilized approach, sterile cockpit is another one that that GA pilots can use that uh, uh, at the airlines. We're not allowed to uh, have conversation that's not pertinent to the safety of flight when we are in a critical phase of flight, meaning for us it's below 10,000 feet or when we're taxiing out for takeoff. Well, GA, I would say below 1,000 feet or 3,000 feet, uh, keep it sterile. Brief your passengers to do the same thing. A lot of chatter in the airplane can really be distracting for a pilot. Now we have intercoms that can isolate themselves and that's helpful. But brief the passengers that we're gonna be quiet here and we also now have a sterile time as we're approaching our level off altitude. Uh, you say the last 500 feet approaching level off altitude, you can uh, consider that to be a time to be sterile, because, especially if you're IFR. Uh, it's very critical not to miss your, your altitude or, or when you're getting close to airspace. Uh, but one thing that I brief my first officers is that you can have, well, we can operate at one of two speeds and we choose this. It's slow or screw up. And I don't always say screw up. Sometimes I use a different word. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's a big thing that even my students see is, is never rush to comply. And all my accident investigation, and I do quite a bit of forensics looking into accidents and why they happen. One very common denominator is um, a, a flight crew rushing to comply with ATC or rushing to beat the weather or operating quickly for whatever reason to save time you know who does their run-up while they're taxiing out you know flight controls and right. do their run-up and then you, you don't need to do it in the run-up area well if you do that you're, you're you're setting yourself up you know you're not offering the engine and fuel system enough time to to prove themselves to you so you don't want to just fire up taxi out and take off that time you take in the run-up area is is uh, organizing your thoughts it's being thorough with the checklist and it's offering that 
for example, the fuel system an opportunity to prove itself to you. You know, you, you don't want to burn through all the fuel in the lines and then right after takeoff, that's when your engine failure happens. And that's a whole other topic. But so slow down. You know, that's another technique that I really teach strongly is to operate slowly and deliberately. And that's something that we do at the airlines. We don't rush. And when I do, like I said, I tell my first officers, if you see me rushing, slow me down. If I see you rushing, I'm going to slow you down. All right. So, um, so I want, let's talk about proficiency. Actually, you know, before we talk about proficiency, I want to, this maybe ties to proficiency. So since you're so involved in general aviation, plus you're also obviously an airline pilot, um, and you've kind of, you live that lifestyle. There's a real difference between checklists and flows, right? So for, especially for our younger folks that maybe, you know, they've, they've been in GA, but they haven't seen the, especially after 9-11 and COVID and everything else, right? You can't, the door's closed. You can't look up front anymore to see what the pilots are doing. So, yeah. um, so explain what a flow is. And is, do you think that that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the airlines are maybe safer than GA? I think that is one of the many reasons that, that we can, attribute that safety record to. Uh, and, and I do try to bring that to GA. Like, for example, if I'm teaching engine failures in uh, uh, a Cessna, for example, there's a flow called, I, I teach the backward seven. You know, you're starting down there at the uh, uh, fuel selector, coming up to the throttles, make sure I can go across all the way to the primer. It's a back, well, and, and then I had a student uh, point out to me that that's actually, a, it's a forward seven. Um, <laughs> okay. like really? Yeah, it is. So we have, we also name our scans. It's, it's a forward seven, but we're, who draws it from the tail to the top? That's yeah, a right. backwards to me. So we're drawing it backwards. Anyway, I remember as a flight engineer on the Boeing 727, when I first started, um, well, that was an eternity ago, but we had <laughs> names for scans. We had like for this after start, we'd do a Z scan with a tail. And we do a, a, a T scan or whatever scan. <clears throat> but the importance is to look at everything that's on the checklist and do it in a pattern that you're going to do every time. Mm -hmm. And this is where just sitting in the airplane with your instructor and having an instructor come up with this flow for you. Like, let's do the before start flow. There are certain things on there you need to do. Well, let's put let's take a picture of that cockpit, circle each of these things and say, OK, what's a logical order so that I'm not going back and forth? Right. What's a logical order? So that's a flow is going through a certain flow. And then if it resembles a shape of something, give it a name. If it looks like a P, we'll call it a P scan or, or a diagonal. We'll call it a slash scan, whatever. Or we just call it the before start flow. Mm -hmm. But uh, those flows are something that we do. And because we have the muscle memory, we do it every time. You're, you're focused on doing the task. Then you go to the checklist, use it to actually check that you accomplished all that. So at the airlines, uh, we pre-flight the airplane. We do our whole flow. We go up and down the panel in a certain pattern every time. And when we get to something, we know how to pre-flight that one thing. When that's all finished, we do a checklist. When one pilot reads the checklist to the other. And in single pilot resource management, this is something that the pilot can do to himself as well by simply reading it aloud and looking at the thing. And if you get to a step where it says primer in and locked and you don't remember touching it in your flow, mm. then go grab it and yank on it. Make sure it is in and locked at that point. Or doors and windows closed, you don't remember confirming that. At that point, stop the checklist and double check. But if you did do it and you remember doing it, then keep moving through the checklist. And it's it's the problem with just reading and doing. Is, and, and I do 
promote that with brand new students. I'll say, cause it's like a read and do because they don't know how to do it yet. They haven't developed right. any kind of scans or flows. So we do it as a read and do just for learning, but later it becomes just a checklist. But the problem with it is, is your, your, your thumb can slip down one step. You're doing this step and then you come back here while you're doing it, your thumb moves down two steps and then you skip one of the steps when you're reading and doing, and, and that can be tragic. Yeah. You know, I, um, I just grabbed, I had one by my desk, right? So, you know, here's a checklist for folks that don't are in aviation yet or in flying yet. And so, the, you know, this is a smaller checklist. They make bigger ones, but, um, as you can probably tell from the camera, these items are really small. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, if it's, especially in GA, right, you don't have, you typically don't have air conditioning in the via, in, in, in the airplane. So it can be a hundred degrees outside. You've got your family in the back. They're sweating. You're sweating. You're miserable. You're trying to grab an IFR clearance. Uh, that maybe you're getting routed someplace you're not familiar with. And then you kind of, like you said before, you're kind of feel like you're getting rushed by ATC. You got three people behind you in line to take off. And now you're doing this checklist. Um, and it's real easy just to try, you know, to mentally miss, you know, steps. Um, yeah. I know one time, you know, I, I'm always free to admit my mistakes. I went to do a takeoff and I still had the carpet on because I'm used to flying fuel injection. And so m mentally, I had the right checklist that had, you know, turn carb heat off, um, but I didn't have the mental, you know, the mental flow for it. Um, you know, so yeah, so it's, I think those flows are really helpful and I hope that we do see that coming more into GA. Yeah, they're very, very important. And at the airlines where now where I work, we're actually calling it triggers and flows because something should trigger the flow. <clears throat> one of the triggers, for example, is the last engine started. So if you only have one engine, it started, then that should trigger your after start flow make sure everything is how it should be for after start um so 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 kind of form triggers as well i think that's just as important along with what your flow is is when are you going to do it and something should trigger it for you and there were times when i would take a light bulb cover off of something and put it over onto something other switch or something that would remind me that because when that light came on i had to go do this other thing you know there are techniques like that that you can use um there are all kinds of techniques that I think instructors should employ. And w one of them, I mean, is what just getting out of the ramp area from the tie down, you're going to taxi away. What's your biggest risk at that point? And I'm quizzing you because I'm oh. quizzing everybody. It's a <laughs> pregnant pause just so everybody who's watching can kind of think, well, what is my biggest risk? And you, a good pilot is always trying to figure out what is the risk at this point. There always is a risk. Just getting out of bed involves risk, especially Probably for a me. fuel truck behind me or something. You know, there's something on the ramp that I can't physically see. Yeah, that's one. Absolutely. But no, I'm talking about embarrassment. <laughs> oh. Being embarrassed of attempting to tie, to, to taxi away with your tie down still hooked up. Oh. That's your biggest risk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Forget about, you know, chopping up. Or your a, chalk a is in. Yeah. <laughs> child with your propeller or blowing away a fuel truck. No, 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 no. It's, it's embarrassment. Right. So, so I find a way to mitigate that risk. Find out, okay, what could embarrass me? Well, trying to taxi away with my tie down still on. How do I mitigate that? Well, I teach my students to grab when they're up at the nose of the airplane to grab the hub of the propeller and make sure it's on solid. But now let's go ahead and pull the airplane forward a few feet so that you can pre-flight the entire uh, 360 degrees of each tire. And I tell them that's why they're doing it. But that's not the real reason. <laughs> None of my students have ever attempted to taxi away from a tie down area or a parking spot because they've always pulled the airplane forward a few feet to do what they think is checking the tires. But it's not. It's just about avoiding the risk of embarrassment. We don't want to be embarrassed.
<laughs> I saw a uh, real quick story. I think maybe you'll enjoy. So um, Oshkosh one year. So I was at Oshkosh one year and the grass, the grass was a little higher than it probably should have been. We had a lot of rain and there was a really, um, there was a van that was really low to the ground. And uh, so when people are thinking, you know, you know, they think of airplanes to your story, they think of airplanes on tarmacs and, you know, especially like a high wing Cessna, like how could you miss that tie down? Right. But then you go to something like Oshkosh, you go to a grass field, especially right where you don't have, and especially if they're using a green, you know, a <laughs> grass colored green rope and you have a low wing airplane. So visually you have to get down to go look at it. Um, I, there was a guy at Oshkosh one time, uh, we all saw it happening. We all tried waving at him, but he was, his eyes were inside the cockpit, which is actually bad too, when you start your engine. And, um, but he was all, his head was all inside. We're like, yo, you're, you're, you're you know, <laughs> you're chucked in, you're, you're, you get your rope in. And um, he didn't see yeah. us and he, he guns it and he goes to start moving. And his airplane just was like yanked <laughs> to the side. Oops. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's those who have and those who will. And none of my students don't because they briefly pull it out. But speaking of rolling, here's another great. What's your greatest risk when you're in the run-up area and your student, you're applying power to do your run-up? What's greatest the greatest risk. risk at the time of power application? Uh, this is a tricky one. Um, all right, I'm trying to think where you're going. And I'm probably going to be wrong. So I'm going to say there's something um, something that's going to blow backwards into somebody. Well, that's possible. Okay. Uh, no, I was it's wrong. actually rolling okay. forward. Because oh, okay. everybody's looking down at the tachometer, right? Oh, right. While right. we're adding all this power. And, and I've seen airplanes in the run-up area. And if you've been out there long, and this is the beauty of experience, I mean, Eventually, you're going to see all these things happen. Hopefully, it's mm -hmm. not you. You see someone else do it. And even the worst case would be that you roll into another airplane or yeah. you roll in front of somebody who's taxiing. But so what I do with my students is we play a game. What I want you to do in the run-up is I want you to guess where 1,700 RPM is. Just look out the window and see if you can set the power. And we're going to see. And, then, and, and when you think you're at 1,700 RPM, go ahead and look down at the tachometer and see if you can get it. And if you do, then uh, the, the hamburger's on me after the lesson. And so it's a game to see, but this does several things. It, it, it teaches them to learn the sound of the airplane, mm -hmm. which I really think is important for pilots to become in tune and that one with the airplane with its sound and its feeling and everything like that. And I don't mean the emotions of the airplane. I mean how it feels when you're flying it. Mm -hmm. But the, the purpose of it isn't to learn how to set the tachometer 1700 RPM without looking at it. The purpose is to be looking out the window when you're adding power, because if you start rolling because you're not holding enough brakes or your brakes aren't working, that's when you're going to see it. So there's mitigating risk. And so the whole thing is about what are the risks? How do we mitigate it? So as an instructor, you come up with little things like this. I want, I want eyes outside the airplane when you're adding power at all times. That's yeah, the I game I play. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, and I, I do, I think that GA, especially, especially single pilot GA with, with all of our fancy glass screens now, um, that just demands so much attention. And, you know, instead of people, you know, um, you know, tuning in their radios and setting up their flight plans, they, I see so many people doing that while they're taxiing, you know, and then yeah. their heads are down in their laps and. And there are some flight schools. I've given some phase checks or uh, flight reviews to pilots who have come out of the big school uh, aviation programs who won't be mentioned here, but <laughs> they do a lot of things while they're taxing the airplane. I don't yeah. like that. Uh, the only thing you should be doing while you tax the airplane is if you're on an instrument flight, you want to check your gyros. Mm -hmm. You want to test your brakes, but otherwise your focus should be 100% out the window focusing on getting the airplane safely to an area where you can do all these checks 
and get your eyes inside the cockpit, especially as a single pilot. So as a single pilot resource management, don't do any inside the cockpit tasks while you're moving the airplane on the ground. You're looking for double yellow lines you don't want to cross, and you're looking for things that you don't want to hit. So if you stay on the concrete and don't hit anything, that's your goal. And when I have students who do that, I just cover, I take the sectional. Yeah, I still have paper sectionals, not to read anymore because they're on my iPad, but they're great for making a big, long screen to block the other side of the cockpit. Uh, oh, so that's that they can't idea. look at anything or do anything while they're taxiing out. I'm like, focus outside. You should be eyes out the window when you're taxiing to the runway. But there are a lot, that, like I said, these big flight schools at a university level, because they're so busy and flight time means so much, they're trying to accomplish things while they're taxiing out. And that falls into the two speeds concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, too fast or, yeah, <laughs> too, you know, slow or, or too fast. Um, slower yeah, screw up, yeah. Slower <laughs> screw up. You know, I'm almost thinking like, uh, you know, it'd be funny is to uh, find like, you know, a dashboard, it's got the little lip that comes over, right? Cause usually the lights underneath it. And to yeah. put like a little shower screen <laughs> slide it over and slide it back <laughs> yeah. during taxi. Yeah, you know, most of the most of your uh, checklist, right? The, the setting of the avionics is part of the pre-taxi checklist. It's not in the yeah. taxi checklist. Yeah, um, get that done ahead of time. And as as a, as a multi-pilot crew, we are now our policy is to tell the other guy when you know, we want four eyes out the window. Mm -hmm. And when you're when when you when your co-pilot or whoever's not taxiing the airplane is going to look down and do something, we say, hey, I'm going eyes in. And that brings up uh, a level of alertness, alertness, bleh. how do you say alertness? <laughs> alertness. That's it. It brings the, the pilot who's taxiing up to a higher level of alertness because he knows level of alertness. That's really cool. That's, that's kind of fun to say. You should make that a book. Level of alertness. <laughs> Levels of alertness. <laughs> anyway, so we tell the other guy, hey, I'm looking down. Uh, so you know he, you're not going to go looking down while you know he's looking down. So it's as a single pilot, Single pilot resource management would dictate that you talk to yourself and brief yourself as well. And I think uh, I always tell my first officers, hey, I'm going to I verbalize everything I'm doing so that you know what I'm thinking. And if I'm going to pass this taxiway, but turn left on the next one, I verbalize it. I said, mm -hmm. OK, going past Bravo. Next one's Charlie. I'm turning left there. I say that out loud so that he knows what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, and he doesn't have to hope that I get it right. And, I, and if I'm holding, approaching a hold short line, I say, all right, here comes the runway. I'm, I'm going to hold short right here. Single pilot resource management dictates you should do that to yourself. Talk to yourself out loud because when you say it out loud, your inner pilot hears it. Your inner co-pilot, your inner backup pilot monitoring hears you say that and you become a better pilot as a single pilot. Yeah, two things. One, I think I'm going to steal that idea, the the eyes inside. Um, I really like that. You know, even in civil, because civil air patrol, we fly a lot of two people, you know, flights as well. Because uh, usually one person is responsible for the mission activities and one person is responsible for not flying into something. Um, yeah. So, so, but yeah, when we were taxiing, having, you know, everybody looking outside, that we, we train that a lot as well. But I really like the idea of verbalizing, you know, if you're going to set up the mission radio, because we have, a, for people that don't know in CAP, we have extra radios and extra gear inside the airplane above and beyond what GA usually has. And so, yeah. um, so we usually, you know, very similar to like an, um, an airline pilot, you would have your, um, um, you know, your company you know, your company radio. Um, CAP has something very similar to that, that setup. And so if you're gonna bring your eyes in, I think it actually is good because then the other pilot who may be expecting you to be also looking um, now knows, okay, they're the sole person looking outside that window. I like that idea a lot. Um, yeah, absolutely. I recommend you, I highly recommend you do that. And something you said earlier, I think you were alluding to when we talked about looking at all these accidents and the human factor um, is the errors that we make. Now, everybody 
Uh, I'm sure you're self-excluded, but all of us make mistakes. <laughs> I have landed in <laughs> an airplane and, and putting the wheels down, so I'm, I can't take myself out of that one. It's not in the mistakes that we make. It's in how we recover from having made that mistake. Right. And so we all make errors, you know, and it's like well, if I'm going to tip a waitress, you know, I'm not going to base my tip on what goes wrong. I'm going to base my my tip on how that waiter or waitress handled what went wrong. Right. Well, as a pilot, our lives depend on how we handle what goes wrong and how we can manage our errors. The biggest cause of accidents is human you know, error, obviously. But we want to trap these errors. And if, if you're talking about a multi-pilot crew, the most common trap for the mistakes is the pilot monitoring. Mm -hmm. Somebody watching. I've made my best landings from the flight engineer's seat. <laughs> You know, I don't even have a set of flight controls, but the sitting back there <laughs> overlooking the other pilot doing things that he, the you pilot monitoring everything. is crucial. And that's become yeah. a very important thing in the, in the airline industry. So if you guys are operating in a scenario, even if you have two private pilots going up to go get a hamburger together, you have two pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, the other pilot now becomes a pilot monitoring and there's a pilot flying. Well, the pilot monitoring is the one who traps the problems because he's watching and he can see, he knows what should be happening. And should speak up and mention it when he sees something or she sees something that should be different or, or what's about to go wrong. You know, that's an um, that's an acronym, by the way, for those of those who are just getting into aviation. That is that's creeping into more and more of the FAA books. You'll see PF and PM. Um, yes. And up until about 10 years ago, I don't think you hardly ever saw them say PF and PM. So if you're not familiar with the, what that means, what does PF mean PM? It means exactly what Brian just said. So PF is the pilot flying the airplane and PM indicates the pilot monitoring, um, you know, the performance of what the pilot's doing. And interestingly, it used to be called when this was evolving, it used to be called the pilot not flying. So it was oh. the PNF. So PF and the PNF, but PNF means it, it kind of gave a negative connotation to, or a connotation to not doing something. Right. You're saying it out when that's not really what it should be. The pilot who's not flying the airplane is actually has a very active role in the safety of that flight. So they're, they're monitoring. So they changed it from pilot, not flying to pilot monitoring because it has a more positive active connotation. Now, Brian, I do want to get, I have one more question before we kind of get into it, but I want to make sure I have you for enough time. Um, I don't want to keep you for longer than you have free. Um, so do you got a few extra minutes to talk? I have until Easter. I just, we have Easter dinner tomorrow <laughs> okay. night. Oh, All right. Dinner. I won't be that long. All right. Um, well, I appreciate your time. And, and I sure. think this is a great conversation for a lot of, especially for the folks that are just learning to fly. Um, and, and so, cause you, you have both sides of it. So now what is something that you see, um, you know, in your airline, you might've already kind of mentioned it, but what do you see something maybe in your air, airline career that you, you think that we're either not training properly or um, the GA community could do better um, to, to improve our safety? What am I seeing is not being done properly at the airline level or GA? At the GA level. That, that you know, that, that once you get to the airlines, airlines kind of have their own way of doing it. And if GA kind of, you know, absorbed, you know, the way that uh, the airlines are doing something could improve safety in GA. I think two things come to mind. The first is standardization to do things the same way every way, every time, do it the same way, uh, because you get into that standard loop. And when you get something happens outside that, it, it stands out. When something non-standard happens, it sticks out and it catches your attention uh, more readily. So, so 
operate with a set of standards. Do it the same way every time. Have your standards that, under which you're going to operate. I'm going to do it like this, this, this every time. Uh, and, and be flexible enough to change them as time goes on. It's a living, breathing document, these standards, in your whether it's written or in your head. But let them evolve into what works best for you and your operation. Uh, the, the airlines operate under a set of standards. That's how we can fly with thousands of pilots who we've never met before, hop in an airplane and safely fly it from one place to another because we know what the other is going to do. Uh, and we can, when we, cause we all operate under these standards, but as a single pilot, same thing, uh, operate under standards. The second thing that I see GA having a little bit more of an issue with and than, than I think professional pilots is assertiveness with ATC. Mm. And I don't think that, I'm not trying to get the impression that you need to be rude to ATC or um, be argumentative or, or contrary to, the, to what they're saying, but there is a time when a GA pilot needs to be assertive with ATC and they need to know that they are flying the airplane, not the controller. So when a controller says, uh, clear for immediate takeoff and you're not ready, mm -hmm. What do you do? And when you ask a new pilot that, or you observe a new pilot, they will feel pressured to hurry up and take off. But they need to be assertive with ATC for their own purpose and say, uh, unable, I'd rather wait, I'm not ready yet, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, using the word unable or the word say again or speak slower, uh, and, and most importantly, not being afraid to declare an emergency if you truly have one and doing it early. So before every flight, I just declare the emergency, put 7,700 in before takeoff, and I am treated with kick gloves on every flight. No, I'm kidding. That was a joke. Um, yeah, I, I saw, I saw a video where somebody... going wrong and things are not normal, you need to tell ATC, uh, even if you just have to talk in plain English, hey, I've got this happening. I'm not quite sure how it's going to affect my flight. Uh, let them know. Let them know what's going on because they can be an incredible resource to you if they know what's going on in the cockpit. Um so tell them what you need, what you can't do. If they ask you to do a 360 on downwind and you're not comfortable with it for whatever reason, because of weather or your own, just say unable, they'll find another plan for you. Uh, ask for another plan and, and don't just give in or do what you're told because a lot of the students, a lot of GA pilots consider ATC to be such a high up authority that right. they can't argue with them or come up with another plan. And I'm not saying argue, but do what you're, what you know is best. You're the pilot. You know what's best. They are there to separate aircraft and sequence them in for landing. Uh, so be assertive when needed. Say no when you can't and ask for a different option when you need it. But most importantly, if you're having a problem, declare an emergency. Yeah, we had, um, I was just flying yesterday and um, something like that kind of happened and it caught my attention. I, I, lo I love our controllers um, here in, in Greenville. And, um, but there was a Bonanza taking off um, and we had already just taken off and there was a, there was another aircraft coming in. And so the controller did, the controller said to him, Hey, you know, you, you can, you know, clear for takeoff now, or you're going to have to wait. Right. And so, and so, you know, the, 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 the Bonanza said, okay, we'll take off now. You know, I don't know if they were truly ready. I mean, they were right behind us. So I don't know if they had already done their run up. I mean, I don't know if they, you know, I don't, I was in the airplane. Um, but and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. But I mean, they, they might've rushed themselves just because the controller said, well, go now or wait, you know? So wait, Yeah, wait. you know, I, I was taxing out in the, the Airbus 
few months ago at Philadelphia. They got two runways, a long one and a short one. And they were departing on the short one. Everybody was landing on the long one. And they had a long line of airplanes waiting for takeoff. And I requested the long runway because of our weight. We were flying across the country all the way, all the way back to L.A. Weather in L.A. was bad, so we had extra fuel. And we were nice and heavy. Full airplane, full of fuel. I wanted the longer runway. Our numbers said we could use the short runway, but we'd have to add flaps to do it. Mm-hmm. And so here we are trying to make an accommodation with the airplane to use a shorter runway when there's a perfectly good long one right next to it, but they're using that runway for landing. We told it, and I told my first officer, I said, tell them we want the long runway. She didn't want to say it. She said, because there's a lot of airplanes coming in, a lot of airplanes going out. And I said, all right, I'll tell them. And so I said, but request, uh, you know, the right runway, the, the longer one. And they came back and said, well, you're going to have a significant delay. We have a lot of arrivals on that. And I said, that's fine. What they're telling me and delays and things, that is of no concern to me. Right. And the decision that I made, I made a decision to, I wanted the longer runway. And because it's going to take longer is not a reason to compromise that request even among even in your own mind so you as a pilot and a pilot in command know what's right you know what you want make sure that you get it even if it if it's a little delay as it turns out we took off sooner than we would have if we waited in that long line for the oh, other wow. runway <laughs> so all the other pilots are like i wish we you know wish we would last for the long runway too so right. yeah you never you never want to be on the other side of a safety review of an accident review you know and the outcome of ben i rushed I could, you know, this exactly. Was... And and I saw an airplane coming in. I was on final once in, in uh, my Zatabria and ahead of me was a Cessna 172 way, way higher than me. And, and I couldn't find them. And I realized that they were way high trying to get down. And they were doing this, you know, a little bit of a slip trying to mm-hmm. get down. I could clearly see they're too high. And the, the pilot said, well, well, I'm going to go around. I'm too high. And I thought, good idea. <laughs> and the, the, the as he was getting down and starting to go around, the controller came back and said, you've got at least 3,000 feet remaining, uh, you know, and talked him into a discontinuing oh, no. the go-around and landing. On a 6,000-foot runway, they had 3,000 remaining. Yeah. And then, uh, to my surprise, the pilot said, okay, and he powered back and he started down again and landed on the last half of the runway. Oh. And I thought, wow, I was surprised that ATC asked that. Yeah. But I'm more surprised that the pilot accepted it. Right. Yeah. Once in your mind, you, you, you kind of told yourself, go around. I mean, there has to be like an engine out or something <laughs> that, right. you know, to force you, you onto that ground. Plan, try to commit to it and don't let someone change your mind for an outside reason. Right. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm kind of surprised the ATC would even say that. Um, I was surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Because at that point, you know, if something happens, they kind of took ownership. <laughs> um, I would think so. Yeah. Luckily, nothing did happen. So, all right. So, I, um, all right. Listen, we've been talking for an hour, and now I'm finally going to get to the point of the conversation, which is talk about proficiency. Um, yeah. So, so, and, and you do go by the proficient pilot. You've, you've taken the moniker, um, and so you know. Typically, we talk about proficiency. We I th- we usually talk about GA, but I actually want to talk about the airlines too because we're in a weird situation now where we have a lot of pilots that have been furloughed for a long time. Um, that, you know, are now just getting their callbacks and, you know, and they're, they're, they are now, you know, have questions about proficiency. They may do their couple of flights and their couple of landings and takeoffs, you know, in simulators or whatever. So at at a high level, um, for the folks that, you know, maybe aren't as into it as you or me. So what's the difference between being proficient and being, um, I'm so used to proficient, um, 
the FAA current. current thank you. The difference yeah. between being current and proficient. And that's a great question. In fact, it's a it's an oral prep question, and and I don't. I have many students who've been asked that on their orals. So, you know, please explain the difference between currency and proficiency. And it's a very important concept to grasp that the FAA requirements are absolute minimums. They're saying if you haven't done this, then you're just not legal to fly. If you haven't made three takeoffs and landings in that airplane in the last 90 days, then you cannot carry passengers. You can go out and do them yourself, get recurrent. So that is an absolute minimum. The currency requirements are minimum. Proficiency is where you want to be to feel comfortable and safe. Uh, there are many scenarios where you can be current but not safe. You, so you want to have your, your, your level of practice at a point where you've, you're, you're comfortable with it. Something can go wrong and your, your flying is going to be second nature and you can divide your attention to that problem. That, at that point, you're proficient because flying is, a, I don't want to say second nature, but it feels more second nature. A lot of the movements, you know where the switches are. Um, so if you haven't flown in a long time, the only way to become proficient is to go fly some more and, and read more, read the aircraft operating manual, get re-familiarized with that. And even the airplane flying handbook and read some more of that, understand some more, learn more, keep reading. So get your knowledge level back up, but also your skill level. So let's say you haven't flown in a long time and I'm going to fess up right here. My landings have expired at the airline, even though I haven't been furloughed. It's been more than 90 days since I've made a takeoff or landing because of what we have going on right now in the industry and half the air, the fleet being parked, but they're coming back. But for a long time, we weren't doing much flying. They cut the, the flying levels in half, but we still have the same number of pilots. And then with the, the government money that came in, they weren't allowed to, to furlough. So we're paying a lot of pilots to stay at work. We don't need as many. Long story short, my landings expired because I bid reserve and they never called me. And... I have to go back to Dallas to go do uh, fly the simulator and, and do my three takeoffs and landings before mm -hmm. I can fly passengers. As a GA pilot, if you've gone that far as to not be current anymore, you can go do three takeoffs and landings and be current, but are you proficient? If you're going to take a long cross country with people from here to Oshkosh and haven't flown in a long time, I'd say you're current but not proficient. So doing the three takeoffs and landings will get you current, but what you need to do is go up and do some air work. Do some stalls, steep turns, slow flight, takeoffs and landings, spend some time in the pattern, do all that. Now you've just made yourself proficient. And now I would feel more comfortable flying a group of people and passengers to Oshkosh on a long cross country, which could encounter scenarios that would require those proficiency skills. Yeah, I like something you said too. You know, proficiency as far as, um, you know, we only have all of us, right? We only have so many brain cells. So, you know, if you're not proficient, you might, you're, you're going to be using a portion of your brain to think through things, um, that would normally be available to think through something else. I know, um, you know, just my flight yesterday, again, this is the CFI max show. Um, you know, I was doing something I haven't done in a really long time. And I, and I was in an airplane that had, um, a new different type of Garmin glass green that I've never flown it before. So I didn't know which buttons to push and the right, you know, which knobs to turn to do right things. And I was under the hood 
And, um, and so I literally exhausted my brain cells. Like there wasn't any left. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. um, you know, there was, I actually came home after the flight, I actually left the flight, um, you know, a little, like it was fine. It was safe, you know, all that kind of stuff, but it wasn't at the level of proficiency that, that I would have expected, you know, that I demanded of myself anyways. And so I came home and I'm like, all right, that wasn't good. I need to make that better. And so, so yeah, that, that's where like, okay, you know, you may have had the number of landings, stuff like that, but that was a proficiency issue. Um, I came home on flight simulator because I didn't have the issues of what, you know, knowing how to change the radios and there was enough brain cells. The stuff that he asked me to do was super simple. I just didn't have yeah. the brain cells to be able to focus on it because my brain was doing other things because I wasn't proficient. So, yeah. And that's a great, great example. And, and avionics proficiency is a big one. If you can get a simulator on your home computer to, to play with the avionics, that's the biggest thing. We can all get back on the bike. We know how to you know, pull and make the houses get smaller and push and make them bigger mm -hmm. and, and how to fly the airplane and physically maneuver it. Uh, but becoming proficient will make that easier. And you can do you, Like you said, you'll have some more spare brain cells to divide your attention to the other thing that you're not proficient with. And that's the <laughs> avionics. Uh, but if you're going to fly an airplane, get familiar with its avionics. That's very important. You know, 172 isn't a 172 anymore. It right. depends on what the, it's a 172 with a Garmin 750, or it's a 172 with dual VOR DME or ADF or, or Garmin 430 or a King right. uh, autopilot or, and, uh, uh, or, or, a you know, what, what's the other one? Uh, the, the King GPS or whatever, yeah. Collins, who knows, whatever. It could be a different brand. It's got something you, you should become familiar with. Yeah. And it's amazing, especially in GA, especially if you're a rental if you're a renter, right? You, you may have six or seven different 172s and they all have different setups. Um, you know, in the old days- KLN 90, that's what I was trying to think of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> KLN 91, 92, whatever. I mean, you may have, you know, you may have a number of different setups, um, different vendors, like you're saying, different vendors. And so, um, you know, going out and maybe if, if you're gonna go fly an airplane um, that you haven't flown before, you know, even if you know how to fly that, you know, the, the type of airplane, Maybe see if you can, um, you know, talk the uh, the rental company into letting if the airplane's not being used, just go sit out there for a little bit. Um, I know in CAP we can plug in the airplanes, the G one thousands, and so we recommend people, you know, actually go out and just sit in the airplane and just play with the knobs and buttons. Um, Absolutely, the flight school where I teach, they have a ground power unit as well. You can plug in and just sit there uh, as long as you want and 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 use that the redbird simulators uh, yep. some flight schools have are great for that as well so you know um no we we talked a lot about ga but now uh, i do want to ask one more question for you from the proficiency standpoint so a as an airline pilot right you can't just go rent a 737 and go do a, some practice so yeah. you know in in i think this is actually really interesting for folks to know especially nowadays so folks that are again very much like yourself so how do you guys try to stay proficient when you don't have access to the airplane? Is there, is there little things you guys can do? Um, believe it or not, uh, the uh, X-Plane 11 mm -hmm. has a lot of great cockpit simulations for airliners. Mm -hmm. And uh, believe it or not, I use that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very inexpensive flight simulator and very accurate. They've done a great job at making it look and sound just like the real airplane so for visualization purposes that's great do your what flows. we used to do yeah. absent things like that is that we would we the airline would give us a, a a panel which was a picture of the cockpit and switches and we would chair fly in fact when we go to the hotel for training there's always a pin board you know a bulletin board where we can pin these up 
pull the chair right in front of it and you've got your little cockpit and you go through this and go through the checklist, go through the procedures, find each of the switches and dials and indicators and push things and pull things and levers and all the things that you're supposed to touch uh, on that panel. Uh, and you can have your own printed or, or buy a poster, like a 172 cockpit poster, mm -hmm. and go through the checklist, put it, put it on the wall right in front of you at eye level and put a chair in front of it and chair fly and go through the whole process of a flight. And I, and I think that's one of the biggest things that you can do absent going to grab the airplane uh, to keep current. So we have panels that we do that with. Uh, otherwise, we have the simulator. Uh, that that we do that we can go anytime and go sit in our cockpit procedures trainer but then you know a lot of times that's in another city yeah yeah i think um i forgot the name of the company it's pmdg or pdmg or something like that um they, they're the ones that make the really accurate you know um sims for airliners um and say so for x-plane they're they're still they said about a year out um you know, from being able to get that over to the new Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020. But um, yeah, chair flying is so good. You can almost always, when you see a new pilot and you see them really proficient in how they're handling all the instruments and working through the checklist, you can tell that they've spent a lot of time chair flying, usually with a flight simulator of some sort. So Yeah, it makes a difference, especially being able to find things, operate switches and, 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 and have your hand go to the right place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just that, uh, that, innate, um, that innate skill. Well, Brian, I think that was um, pretty much all the questions I had. Um, I want to open the floor to you, though. Is there anything that you wanted to let people know about, um, uh, places to look for you, um, any talks you have coming up, or anything you want folks to know about you? Well, I, I uh, have been focusing a lot of my attention recently on the, the big popular impossible turn topic. I, I have taken over the, the 40 years of research my father has done on that, the impossible turn, the engine failure after takeoff in a single engine airplane and, and when you should and shouldn't turn back to the runway. I'll become, I've done a, a webinar on that. It's on the uh, NAFI, National Association of Flight Instructors website, uh, memorialized on there. You get Wings credit for it, but I'll be doing a new version of that in the coming months. Um, but anything that I've got going on, I put on my website, which is uh, captainshift.com, S-C-H-I-F-F. Uh, but also I'm, I'm trying to start up, not because I want to become a YouTuber, uh, but I want to have a clearinghouse of, of short video topics. And so I'll be starting this Proficient Pilot YouTube channel pretty soon, and I'll be getting some things up and running on there that I think are going to be very helpful for pilots. So just keep an eye on that. That's cool. Uh, what I'll do is I'll go ahead in the, um, the comment section down below. I'll go ahead and I'll put or, uh, the description down below. I'll um, I'll go ahead and put a link to um, um, you know uh, to one to your website that you mentioned, CaptainShift.com. But I'll also put a link to the um, um, the FAA Safety's Wings program. Um, so anybody's interested because you know it, it's not like the old days. And I just actually just had John and Martha King on the show, and uh, Martha King is actually one of our um, um, leads at uh, Civil Air Patrol. Um, she's on the board of directors, so they're very active in Civil Air Patrol, and they've always been a, a, a great proponent. But they're no longer the only game in town. Um, and you know, and the thing that is a little scary is sometimes you know you get a lot of YouTube people. I'm going to be putting some videos up online um, once I get you know all the stuff for inside the airplane. Um, and get approval from CAP to show it. But um, the you have so many p people showing you how to do things. And the yeah. majority of them, I think, are telling you right. Um, but, but very similar to how you said, you, know, you kind of got to take, like if you're flying with different pilots, don't assume that every, you don't have to take everything you see from that pilot. 
take what you want, you know, be respectful. Don't go into the comments section. Oh, you stink. You know, <laughs> that wouldn't <laughs> land an airplane like that. Um, you know, take what you want, you know, and, and give up what you don't. Um, but the FAA safety program, the wings program, there's so much good content there that you know that you're getting for the, you know, I think 99.999% of it, you know, is really well thought out. Um, yeah, so that's 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 really good. Yeah, so. be very careful of what you see on YouTube and and uh, what people are putting out there. There's a, there's a lot of great information. Most of it is great. Look at different sources though. Mm -hmm. Different sources topic talking about the same topic and where you see overlap, where you see them overlapping and agreeing, that's usually the rock solid information. And also, I would implore pilots to confer with your airplane flight manual, with the AIM, the regs, and the airplane flying handbook. And the pilot's handbook of aeronautical knowledge. Look at those to, as the authority. I know we, we had a kind of a round table and, and I was talking to John and Martha King, speaking of them and mm -hmm. working on a way to teach instructors how to teach. And we're coming up with this method, how to teach when and how to make that turn back to the runway if you lose an engine. Uh, so that's something you're going to see more of in the, in the coming uh, months and years. Uh, and in fact, the FAA has asked us to try to help come up with, and, and the Kings are going to be, you know, uh, significantly helpful in that, uh, what we can put in the airplane flying handbook regarding that, because there's really little guidance on that. Um, and there needs to be. Yeah. I know at our airport, we just say 500 feet. Um, and, and literally, and I know that that's not good enough because you have wind conditions, you have so many factors, so many Every different things are going into it. has its own fingerprint at different airport, different pilot, different airplane, you know, in a Bonanza, you wouldn't do that. Right. Or 210, 172 is different. And and if you have a field in front of you, of course, it's not even a factor. You're not turning back. Go right. straight ahead. That 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 age-old adage in, in front of you is where you're going to go if you have a field. We're only talking about when there are no options. Right. And there are some airports like that. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I wish we had more time because I would love to learn more, you know, from you on your head. So I know that when, uh, so do me a favor. So you have my email address. So when you are ready to release that information, um, shoot me a quick note that you've released that because I want to share that and get that out to the CAP members as well. We have a lot of pilots in CAP. Um, I don't think we've had any accidents that way, but we do a pretty decent job. Like you said, though, there's some airports that you don't have an option. Um, I right, know our right. local airport, we have the main air, uh, main runway we go off of, um, you know, runway one. There's a really big golf course at the end of the runway. And we know that we would scare some people really silly, <laughs> but there's a really long runway. There's a really long grass strip, basically, yeah. we can Four. use it. Four. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that'd yeah. be a pretty funny yeah, movie. It'll be coming out later in the summer, probably. All right, cool. Yeah, let me know. And we'll get that, we'll get that out to everybody so they can go over to you and, and check that out on you. Um, all right. Well, Brian, I, I do really appreciate all your time today. And um, I want to say thank you. And uh, hopefully, um, if you get the Oshkosh, hopefully we can have an Oshkosh, uh, you know, burger and a drink. That would be a blast. I will definitely be there, whether they're having it or not. And I think they are having it. Uh, yep. So I will definitely be there. You can find me most of the time at the NAFI tent. Okay. And NAFI stands for what, for the folks that don't know? National Association of Flight Instructors. Cool. All right. Awesome deal. All right. Well, Brian, thanks so much. Really appreciate you. You too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite. All right. Bye. Okay. That was our conversation with Brian Schiff. Um, really down to earth guy. I know that if I was a first officer, that's the kind of, well, I don't know, maybe not. We don't, maybe we don't know what he's like <laughs> as a captain. Maybe he yells at people all the time, but he seems like a really down to earth guy. Um, it's really great to see so many of the pilots 
getting back into the airplane. Um, and I did feel that proficiency uh, was a really good topic to have because with COVID, hopefully again, it's not over yet, but hopefully we're starting to see the end of the tunnel. Um, now, Brian didn't write this, but I do want to give a plug for his dad's book. Um, so uh, you can get, again, there's not many... There's that many box sets in aviation for books, um, and I'll, I'll make sure I don't cover his name. So, and so um, his dad Barry Schiff. Um, if you haven't looked at it, Barry has. He was a writer for AOPA. Um, it just has done a lot of really great stuff. Um, even in the Middle East, he helped a peace flight, um, which was really pretty amazing. So, if if you want to go ahead and search on Barry Schiff as well, uh, you'll learn a lot of great things. Um, and with that, I want to thank everyone for joining. If you're somebody who might be interested in learning more about Civil Air Patrol, the flying that we do, whether you're 12 years old or you're 112 years old, uh, we would love to have you. So go visit GoCivilAirPatrol.com. With that, we'll have a talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed that video. If you did, please do me a favor. Hit that like button. Hit the subscribe button if you want to see more content. Up here on the left-hand side, you're going to see another video from our uh, this playlist. And if you click down here, you're going to see another video on our channel. Hope you guys all have a great day. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.